Welcome to the NPM Interconnections podcast. I'm East Coast reporter Colt Shaw. And joining me this week is Gabe Murtaugh, the Director of Markets and Technology at the Long Duration Energy Storage Council, to discuss federal policy drivers for battery storage, storage as a transmission-only asset, and more. All right. Hi, Gabe. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. It's great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, we could just jump right into it. Um, so uh, obviously, you know, uh, with your work at the uh, Long Duration Energy Storage Council, I'm sure uh, I know you had a hand in this report. Uh, but uh, a recent report from the LDESC uh, said long duration storage paired with renewables could shrink emissions globally 65%. I was wondering kind of what your thoughts are on kind of what the main hurdles or barriers uh, that are kind of standing in the way of that are at the moment. That's a big question. Um, yeah, nice to get the nice to get the big ones right up front. So many of and and there's a lot of research on the Long Duration Energy Storage Council website um, for further reading on this. Uh, but many of the technologies for long duration are still emerging, and you know, frankly, across the globe. There's not a ton of long duration energy storage that's been installed over the last few years alongside of the huge influx of new uh, renewable um, resources that have been installed. So there are legacy projects like um, pumped hydro storage is probably the best example where uh, you know, energy water is stored in two reservoirs. One's usually uphill and one's downhill, and the project can generate electricity similar to a hydroelectric generating system by running water down a penstock, spinning a turbine, and generating electricity from that movement. And then uh, when it's pumping, you pump water from the lower reservoir to the upper reservoir, and you're consuming electricity while you're doing that. In a way, you're storing energy um, by moving water up or down a hill. Uh, and that technology has been around for a very long time, uh, 100, 100 years, more or less. And other than that, um, there haven't been huge influxes of long-duration energy storage. So a lot of the technologies that are out there um, Obviously, pumped hydro has very specific um, geographical uh, considerations when you're building it. Um, so you have to have that elevation change. You have to have places that are conducive to building a reservoir. Um, so that that's definitely so. A lot of the best places to build pumped hydro storage have already been taken. But a lot of these other technologies are relatively new. And uh, it's going to take a little bit of while. It's going to take a little while for them to evolve to a place where they can be deployed at very large scale. Um, along those same lines, uh, the technology is new, which also means costs tend to be a lot higher uh, than they may be in the future. So costs for photovoltaic solar have precipitously come down um, since they've become so mainstream. The same thing has happened with wind technology. And we anticipate that very similar things are going to happen with a lot of the long duration energy storage technology as time goes on. Gotcha. Uh, well, now kind of a year out from the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, um, obviously mm -hmm. with you know allowing uh, standalone and solar plus storage uh, projects mm -hmm. to be eligible for that 30% investment tax credit, uh, obviously a big deal uh, for storage development. Uh, with kind of a year now under our belt, I was kind of wondering if if you've seen that change the kind of storage development landscape at all. Um, and if so, uh, yeah, have you seen more interest? Have you seen more, uh, you know, more projects coming out of that? Absolutely. Yeah, the Infl Inflation Reduction Act has 
big implications on how much projects cost. And, and you know, you can save uh, somewhere in the range of, of 70 to 80% in terms of uh, tax credits for these projects. Um, I, you know, I think that, uh, you know, there, there's obviously adders, you know, you get more benefits if you are located in um, a, a uh, energy community. You know, if, if you, I'm sorry. Did you mean an energy community? Yeah. So, you know, you, you, um, you know, you get additional benefits. Yeah. If you're, if you're located in disadvantaged communities, you get additional benefits. If most of your product is um, developed here in the U S uh, you get additional benefits. If you are um, using resources that are sourced in the United States, um, and, and those are all changing the economics of how affordable some of these projects are, and they're certainly becoming more affordable. Mm. Um, and, and then there's just the tax credit in general. Hey, I'm helping to decarbonize the, decarbonize the grid, so you get a, a baseline tax credit for that. So these, yeah, I, I, IRA um, kicks in for resources that are built in year 2025 and beyond. Um, there are a lot of companies out there that are ramping up their overall production, anticipating these tax credits. Um, there's a lot of companies that are ramping up uh, manufacturing here in the U.S. And there's companies who are starting to think about sourcing raw materials here in the U.S. as well. So this is, you know, a, as you said, a landmark piece of policy at the federal government level. And um, it, it is certainly going to drive a lot of development in the storage space and the long duration storage space. Mm. Well, well, on the topic of kind of federal efforts around this, uh, yeah. the bipartisan infrastructure bill had uh, or you know included the, I guess, around a half a billion dollar uh, long duration energy storage for everyone everywhere initiative, kind of a mouthful. Mm -hmm. but, um, it basically, I, I believe, started as just kind of a request for information and seemed to be focused on kind of pilot and demonstration projects at the time. Uh, I was wondering if you know what, uh, if anything, has come out of this so far, and uh, yeah, I guess what what your thoughts are on it, on kind of as a as an initial step towards developing these uh, these longer durations uh, projects. Yeah, there's been a significant amount of money from the Department of Energy. Uh, there's also been uh, monies from other um, you know grid operators or regions around the country going to developing long duration energy storage projects. So the same thing that we were talking about earlier, where you know there's general acknowledgement that as more of this technology gets built, we're going to come down on the cost curve and that's just going to be better for everybody. And it's going to help unlock a lot of the potential to decarbonize the grid um, in general. Um, so there have been a lot of monies from the Department of Energy that have been awarded to long duration energy storage projects, um, including a number of members of the Long Duration Energy Storage Council. Um, so we've obviously been very excited to hear that. Um, and, and it's really spurring a lot of growth in this industry. Great. Um, and yeah, you know, obviously, uh, having left uh, California ISO earlier this year as a storage sector manager, uh, mm -hmm. and now that you're kind of serving in a role that kind of, you know, takes into the, you know, takes into account the entire country and different efforts being made across the country. I was kind of wondering if you've noticed, you know, and it could just be California ISO, but I was wondering if you've noticed any grid operators that are particularly ahead of the curve when it comes to storage policy and okay. any that are kind of, I guess, playing catch up at the moment. Yeah. So storage policy is tied almost directly with uh, decarbonization and climate goals. So once you start to decarbonize, once you start to get a lot of renewable resources on the system, that's when you start to see the need for more storage resources. So it's the need to 
move energy from the times of the day when it's being generated to the times of the day when it's being consumed. Obviously, if you're building out a lot of solar resources, you're going to have a lot of energy during the middle part of the day. And then the evening and the early morning hours, you're not going to have any generation from those solar resources. So you need storage to be able to move that energy uh, be between those times of the day. As your penetrations get even deeper for renewables, you need long duration energy storage to do that, that same kind of movement on a daily basis, but also to kind of bridge the gaps in the day where you don't have very much solar and wind. And then, you know, to think about moving energy from times of the year when wind and solar is abundant, like in the spring and the fall, and loads are pretty low to the times of the year when loads are very high, like in the winter, when you also don't get much sunlight at its potential, you know, there's a potential to have multiple days of low wind, and you could potentially need, you know, storage for several consecutive days, and you're not getting very much from your uh, generation. So um, California does have goals to decarbonize uh, the electricity grid by 2045. So that's driving a lot of new procurement. Um, so there is a lot of solar and wind on the California system. Um, new York actually just recently unrolled some new decarbonization targets. They are planning to be 70% decarbonized by 2030 and 100% decarbonized by 2040. So those are really aggressive goals. Mm -hmm. And uh, those line up with some goals um, for some of the European countries as well. And being 70% uh, decarbonized means a lot of investment in renewable resources. So they're going to have huge build-outs of wind and solar, um, and that's just naturally going to follow uh, to, to have additional storage on the system. Um, some of the areas around, some other areas around the country are seeing times of the day when, say, high wind generation causes congestion on lines. Um, storage resources can obviously help with this. They can capture excess wind, you know, upstream of those congestion points. Um, capture it, frankly, when prices are very low. So there are some economic drivers there to do that. Um, and then placing those storage resources downstream of the congestion can effectively enhance the total amount of energy that's delivered during a, like a peak time when loads are pretty high. Um, so there's there are some applications in other grids um, where you do see penetrations of renewables in specific corridors and you're, you're starting to see transmission congestion as a result of that. Um, some of those other uh, markets aren't, you know, aren't decarbonized to the same extent or aren't planning to be as decarbonized to the same extent as, you know, geographies like California and New York. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised to start seeing um, storage resources and long duration energy storage resources being deployed in some of those situations, too. Great. Well, you mentioned developers uh, ramping up uh, plans uh, for projects. Mm -hmm. um, so that kind of brings, you know, fulfillment to mind. I was kind of wondering uh, how you describe the kind of current state of domestic battery manufacturing in the U.S. Um, and if there's any, you know, reasons to be hopeful and just kind of where we are now versus a couple of years ago and kind of where you see that headed. Well, just to, you know, to think about long duration energy storage resources. Um, yeah, there's a number of um Eldez Council members who are scaling up production in the U.S. right now. Um, so it's prevalent. It's out there. Um, like I said, you know, th there are some companies that are today signing you know, 100 plus megawatt deals for long duration energy storage, so 10 plus hours of storage. Um, and many of those contracts come online in the next you know, five years or so. So I think in the next five years, we're going to have a lot clearer picture about, you know, where these are being manufactured, how manufacturing is being scaled up and, you know, start starting to see, you know, really big 
significant grid scale deployments of LDES technology out there. Right. Uh, well, obviously, we spoke a few weeks back about the uh, potential for battery storage projects to to function as uh, transmission assets, mm -hmm. uh, basically as a as a means of avoiding uh, more costly upgrades. Um, with uh, kind of the uh, news peg being that New England ISO was just approved by FERC uh, to consider them as such and to kind of plan their grid around them. Uh, mm -hmm. But one thing that we were discussing was the kind of proviso that uh, batteries are not also able to uh, function in the capacity markets and the ancillary markets, ancillary services markets, uh, for fear of, I guess, like double dipping on revenue or something mm -hmm. along those lines. Uh, I was wondering, kind of just given your experience at California ISO, what kind of headaches you expect that to bring as they try to implement uh, implement this kind of technology onto the grid? Yeah, so the Mid-Continent ISO, MISO, um, and and the the policy that you just mentioned have been implemented in the last year. Um, and the, the the specific policy is SETOA. So it's storage as a transmission only asset, which means that, you know, exactly like it sounds, you build these storage resources in lieu of new transmission. And the only function that they serve primarily is, is this transmission function. So on days when you need them, you're going to charge up the storage resource. It sort of acts like a fire extinguisher. It sits there until it's needed. Um, when it is needed, it's discharged and it's charged back up again and it sits there again. Um, yeah, a lot of our conversation uh, you know, a week or so ago was around the fact that, gee, if you're going to go through all this expense and the time of building a storage resource, and let's just say it's in lieu of a $10 million you know, transmission upgrade or something like that, um, and you know, you, your, your studies are indicating that you may only need the transmission upgrade a handful of days a year, five days a year, 10 days a year, 15 days a year, something like that. Um, you know, it's on those 15 days when you're charging up the storage resource and you're you're effectively using the storage resource for that transmission capability. You know, the other 360 days or so a year, um, the storage resource isn't doing anything. And to me, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because it can actually be providing um, some of the same benefits as any other storage resource on the grid. And it's not going to impact or reduce your ability to use it as a transmission asset on those days when you do need a transmission asset. So I think there's a little bit of value that's sort of being left on the table here. Um, and, and the whole premise of storage resources today is that, you know, they're charging during the lowest price hours of the day and they're discharging during the highest price hours of the day, which, you know, economically, mathematically, that makes sense. Uh, but during those lowest price hours of the day when they're charging, you know, you're probably charging the resource from potentially renewable resources that would have been otherwise curtailed or, you know, maybe um, low emitting natural gas fire generation. But then when you're discharging the battery, you're actually displacing probably the worst polluting resources. So the, the worst emitting natural gas fired resources are potentially uh, very polluting coal resources. And, um, you know, there, there's obviously environmental impacts there too. So not only could you potentially be getting um, benefits from, you know, not needing to pay for some very expensive transmission upgrades, uh, but you could also ha have this nice um, environmental impact and then you're helping to um, you know, close that uh, disparity between prices. You're helping to avoid curtailment of renewables. All kinds of things like that um, are, are benefits from having storage resources and long duration energy storage resources participating on your grid, as well as potentially providing this transmission uh, function. 
And there are ways, um, you know, the, the accounting can get very tricky. Um, and and you, you certainly do want to avoid things like double dipping. You don't want these resources to get a windfall of money. Um, but but there's ways to do the accounting um, where you can think about, you know, how much revenue and how much rents these resources are making from the energy market and sort of subtract that off from some sort of a fixed payment that would uh, effectively cover the operating costs of these resources. Um, so I'd like other ISOs and, and potentially um, these ISOs to, to think about this policy a little bit in the future and, and hopefully expand it so that we can get a little bit more functionality out of the resources that do uh, eventually get built in lieu of transmission projects. Great. Well, I guess even as, uh, you know, California allows that kind of side uh, revenue allowance of, you know, functioning in the markets, uh, there's really only been kind of a few projects proposed in the state so far. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what you think uh, it's going to take to see more SATA and SATOA projects online in greater numbers, or if you think that that's just going to be tied to, you know, as greater congestion problems become a more pressing issue that they'll be built out or, yeah. Yeah, definitely the latter. I mean, you know, everybody knows that uh, transmission interconnection queues are very thorny right now. Um, I, you know, I was just talking to one of our members yesterday and they were told, you know, by some, by some consultants that it would probably be five to seven years to get through the interconnection queue in California because the backlog is so big right now. Um, one of the things that uh, just came out from the International Energy Agency, the IEA, is that, um, you know, we, in, in order to um, halt uh, increases in global temperatures and, and keep them under 1.5 degrees Celsius, we need to triple the amount of renewables that are installed globally from 2022 levels to 2030. So we're already at the end of 2023, almost in 2024. That means six years, we've got to effectively triple the amount of renewables that are on the system. That doesn't mean, you know, let's slow down, let's reevaluate where we're at, let's, let's try to you know, put, put the brakes on developing renewables. That means integrating even more renewables. That means more pressure on interconnection queues. And then part of what's driving the pressure on those interconnection queues is because the transmission networks are, be, are becoming more, more and more heavily loaded. Um, and, and you sort of have the need now to expand your transmission network. Um, transmission network expansions take years and years, lots of permitting issues, um, lot, lots of like, like studying and planning goes into them, and they're very expensive. So naturally, as we you know, continue to decarbonize, as we begin to add more renewables on the system, as that, that clip increases and doesn't decrease, uh, there's going to be more pressure on finding alternatives to transmission because it is so scarce um, and, and storage resources are, are one thing that can help with that problem. Um, so I, I do think that we'll start to see uh, more storage resources be being used in whatever capacity they possibly can. And this also means changes to the planning paradigm. Mm -hmm. um, so typically you're planning a system to put assets on the grid at your, your one hour of, of most strain. And you're thinking about, you know, when the most elect, you know, electrons are moving across those wires to get to wherever they need to go. Um, and you're kind of planning around that. 
similar to like resource adequacy planning, I think I think that that transmission planning paradigm also changes a little bit once you start to think about significant penetrations of storage, because storage can move things intertemporally. So you're now you know focusing on you know, how do you operate your system over the course of the day? Um, when are you flowing in one direction on, on a line and then another direction later on a line? And how do storage resources play a role in that? Um, certainly going to be heavy questions to answer in the future and frankly, lots of work. Yeah. Well, so I I wasn't even familiar with the concept of SATA or SATOA until, I guess, earlier this year. Uh, I was wondering if there's any other kind of novel uses for battery storage that are being looked at or tested, or if there's any kind of like breakthroughs that that are that are kind of on the horizon that that researchers are looking at in terms of technology that could kind of boost things going forward or, you know, a holy grail that that researchers are considering with uh, storage. Yeah. There's, there's certainly not going to be a silver bullet. And, yeah. and we at the Eldest Council believe that this isn't going to take one technology. It's not going to take one solution. Um, you know, there's long duration energy storage solutions out there. Um, there's decarbonizing industry. So not even thinking about electricity, but how do we decarbonize industry at the same time as electricity, which can mean uh, variable and new loads on our system. Um, so, so that's something that we need to think about as well. Um, you know, using LDES technologies as well as we possibly can, using existing shorter duration storage resources as long as we can, thinking about solutions like hydrogen and green hydrogen, um, things like that. So really, every, you know, we think everything's on the table. This is, you know, getting to where we need to go to combat climate change is going to take all the resources we possibly have. Frankly, we're already probably behind on these goals. Um, so working faster and, and working with as much as we possibly can is going to be helpful to address those goals, but uh, it, it's going to take a lot and it's, and it's not just one answer. I do think that um, we're likely to see some pretty big changes in the electricity, the wholesale electricity market, how that's operated. Um, it doesn't do quite as good of a job when you're thinking about planning renewables and storage resources as it does, which is how we pre predominantly operated the grid for you know 20 plus years with say, you know, natural gas fired resources, coal fired resources, things like that. Um, so probably some big changes there. And then we've already seen that traditional resource adequacy programs just don't work when you have high penetrations of renewables. And they're, they're certainly not going to work when you have renewables and storage. So I think, you know, we're probably going to see a lot in the, along the lines of how do we compensate resources once we procure them? Uh, the questions about, gee, which resources should we be procuring to decarbonize, those kinds of things. Um, and then how does that interface with potentially some new constructs in our in our markets? Um, so really heavy duty questions, which more or less have been answered for you know, grids that are in operation today for the last 20, 25 years. Uh, but it's going to have to be reinvented for the grids of the future. Right. Lots of, that, lots of research, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, all the above, basically. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's a, a perfect place to leave it. Um, yeah, Gabe, I appreciate your, your time and insight and always, as always. And uh, I'm sure I'll be in touch as, you know, Satoa implementation gets underway mm -hmm. and uh, more big news happens in the, in the storage world. But, uh, yeah, thank you as always. Yeah, my pleasure, Colton. Great to be here. Yep. Talk to you next time.